First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two, we'll start in verse four. coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ for this is contained in scripture behold I lay in Zion a choice stone a precious cornerstone and he who believes in him will not be disappointed This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, we know that right now you reign. You reign over all things. You are seated at the right hand of your Father because you finished the work that you came to accomplish. And Lord, that work is finished, it is full, it is final, and it is eternal. And Lord, we are the fruit of that work, and we praise you for this. Lord, we ask you that you would help us this morning to grow in our confidence to proclaim this wonderful work. Lord, really, it's the only work um, that, that has ever been done or will ever be done that can achieve the salvation that men and women need. But Lord, we know that it will, it will be met with different responses. To some, Jesus Christ will become precious. They will see him as the chief cornerstone on which to build their eternity. For others, he will be a stumbling block, a snare and a trap. Lord, help us to be realistic as we go into this world proclaiming the truth because we know we met with either one of these two responses. And so, Lord, just pray that you would encourage us again, remind us and refresh us again at who Christ is, what our message is, and what your plan is overall through all of it. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if if you haven't been here with us, I'm going to try to catch you up in like a minute, okay? We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, and if you look there for, from verse 4 through 8, you'll see, probably in your Bibles, some, some scriptures in there with all caps. That's Old Testament quotations. I'm sure most of you know that. So I've tried to go through some of that Old Testament background. The Old Testament text that Peter quotes is Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, and Isaiah chapter 8. We looked last week at Isaiah chapter 8, which is in verse 8. Of 1 Peter 2, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, referring to the Lord Jesus. And back in Isaiah chapter 8, we saw the context of where a king of Judah, Ahaz, was very fearful, as well as the rest of the people in Judah, were very fearful because of these two northern nations that wanted to come and terrorize them and overthrow them. So God commissions Isaiah to go to Ahaz and exhort him to faith and to trust the Lord. 
God says, if you trust me, you will stand. But if not, you will not stand. So instead, Ahaz, we find, trusts in his, his own machinations, his own schemes, to link arms with Assyria, and in so doing, crush the two northern tribes that were coming against him, or the two northern nations that were coming against him, Ephraim and Syria. And of course, God isn't pleased with this because it reveals unbelief and a reliance upon man's wisdom and trusting in man. And God comes to him with certain judgment. And after God pronounces this judgment to Ahaz, he comes to Isaiah in particular. And he looks at Isaiah in the face, as it were. It actually says that it take, he takes him by the hand in Isaiah chapter 8. And he says that he comes to Isaiah and he instructs Isaiah, Isaiah, you are not to walk in the way of this people, saying... It's a conspiracy to everything that these people call a conspiracy. So let's look back there for a second and get caught up to speed because this is the verse we're going to look at a little bit more this morning in Isaiah chapter 8, where God is talking to Isaiah about this reality that is going on all around him. In Isaiah 8, 12, as I just mentioned, God says, you are not to say, Isaiah, it's a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. So, the rea- so, so what's going on? The, what's going on is that Isaiah is in the midst of people that are frantic. These people understand that the two northern nations are trying to terrorize them and overthrow them. That's what they want. They've heard these things come down the pike. And so the people are extremely afraid, and they're postulating all manner of things about what was going to happen to them. You know, where will they come in? What will happen to us? Where will we go? What do you think they're going to do to us finally? So on and so forth. And so there's all types of conspiracy ideas about what's happening. This is a real thing. This is a real threat. This is not a conspiracy theory in that it may or may not happen, right? These people really are coming against them, even though it hasn't fully happened yet. But what it's creating is it's creating fear in the people, right? When you're facing death, fear is uh, an understandable response. And yet God comes to Isaiah and tells him, Isaiah, don't be afraid. In the midst of this impending doom that you don't know how is going to be meted out one way or another, do not be afraid. He says, verse 13, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. See, fearing impending doom by men and fearing God are mutually exclusive. You will be imbibing the one and rejecting the other, or imbibing the one and rejecting the other. You, you, see, fear, fearing men in particular, it's powerful. And if you give yourself to it, if you give yourself to all the speculation that comes with that fear, you will not be fearing God anymore. God will be growing smaller and smaller, weaker and weaker, more foolish and more foolish in your own mind. And Satan is there to make it so. He wants you to think God is little, indifferent, uncaring, aloof to your particular issues. So he comes to Isaiah, listen Isaiah, don't be like them. You're going to be around them. And what can happen when you are are surrounded by people that are frantic about conspiracies, perceived or real, is you can take on their fear. You can take on their dread. God says to Isaiah, I'm the Lord of hosts. Do not fear what they fear. Well, what happens when we have God as our fear? He becomes a sanctuary for us, verse 14. He shall become a sanctuary. 
What a blessing, right? What an amazing blessing. You and I are as safe here as we are in the middle of Kabul. Right? Is that true? Yeah. Why? Well, because God ultimately is our refuge. The Lord Jesus can send out his disciples and say, do not fear. Why? Because not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. You are just as safe here as you are anywhere. Safety, thinking through it, takes on a different dimension for Christians. We don't make decisions finally because it's safe or not. We do certainly consider things. We're not stupid. But we also don't make that the final arbiter as to whether or not we do X, Y, Z. Why? Because God in in the end is the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of armies. He's the King of kings. So Isaiah, you need to understand this. God gives him a vision in Isaiah 6 of him sitting up on a throne so that Isaiah takes this vision with him throughout his life. He becomes a sanctuary for us. And what I didn't get to last week, and I just have to leave it to you to do this, if you go back in the Psalms and you look up the idea of of sanctuary and refuge and look at all the places where the saints, particularly David and the others, find God as a refuge and a sanctuary as he is being surrounded by enemies. Um, Psalm 3, Psalm 11, Psalm 63. David can say some pretty amazing things when God emboldens and strengthens his soul to be courageous in the middle of impending, impending doom. I've got to read one of them. Psalm 3 is just so good. Most of you are familiar. But I want to do this because, why do I want to do this? I want to do this because our nation grows darker and darker, doesn't it? We feel impending threats more and more. And so the Psalms are going to become more and more relevant to you. If for no other reason than to calm your own soul before God, right? Psalm 3, oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased, right? It's like I had 10, now there's 100. They're increasing. He recognizes it. Adversaries, these aren't people that, these are people who have their sights set on David. My adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul. Now this is interesting. There is no deliverance for him and God, right? God's not going to help you. Let's get real. That's what what these, these opposing voices are saying to David's soul. And David is tempted to believe it. You know he is, because why? Because he's praying. He's praying, Lord, I feel it. Oh, but here's... Here's David's faith, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory, the one who lifts my head, the one who keeps me from crumbling into a corner in fear. You're my glory. The one who lifts my head. The one who makes me as bold as a lion. David tells you and I, verse 4, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. He wants you to know that. He wants you to know when your adversaries increase that he cried to the Lord and the Lord heard him and answered him. One of the reasons God brings adversaries into your life is for you to know this. When God brought the people into the promised land, he left certain pagan nations so that his people would learn war. Do you know that? You need to adjust your expectations of this life. While the American dream may promise health, wealth, and prosperity, God is way more interested 
in your fealty, your allegiance, and your knowing Him through trials, through adversaries, through potential dread. God works in His people faith as adversaries increase. It is no mistake that adversaries increased against David. It wasn't an accident. What did it do? Well, it gave us Psalm 3, didn't it? It gave us the testimony of a man that when faced with adversaries, he cries out to the Lord and the Lord answers him. So that you and I will know when we're surrounded, well, what do I do? Well, I fear God and I find my refuge in him. And guess what? Then I'm able to say, Lord, you're my glory. And not only that, but what else will it help you do? It'll help you go to sleep, right? Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. Listen to this. Listen to this. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves round about me. Thousands of people. I will not be afraid. This, This has to be. This has to be our heartbeat. This has to be where we continue to push ourselves when we are afraid. Brethren, this is not pie in the sky. This is not naive. This is the fact that David has come to terms with his God is the Lord of armies. Just like Elisha and the servant being surrounded, right? Elisha's not afraid. The servant's trembling. He's like, Lord, show this guy. And he shows him. Be controlled by your fear of God. And you'll be able to have your head lifted up and walk through this world where at times maybe thousands are against you. But as we're back in Isaiah 8, and again, this is the, this is the text Peter has in his mind in chapter 2 as he's, as he's thinking. This is the main verse he's, he moves to, and it's this. And it's a sobering verse. The Lord is a sanctuary to Isaiah, but he comes to Isaiah and he says, yes, but to both the houses of Israel, the Lord is a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So Isaiah fears the Lord and then the Lord becomes a sanctuary for him. But on the other hand, he might be a refuge for him, but he's a stumbling block to everyone else in Israel. This has been the track record of Israel throughout redemptive history, has it not? Faith is far the exception than it is the rule in the nation of Israel. So a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, he says. What does this mean? I think it's probably parallelism. In other words, the word stone, the, the words the stone that is being struck and the rock to stumble over, probably the same thing. It's this, this obstacle on your path that you kick along the way, sort of an annoyance. Whenever you go backpacking, you know, or hiking through the woods, you know, you're hiking on a trail and there's all these roots and you don't see them, you trip over it and, you know, you stub your toe or whatever. Most of us who go hiking understand what that's like. It's a little bit annoying, right? Can't get your footing. It's an interruption. And that's the picture. You have the Lord on the one hand being this safe haven, this strong tower, this sanctuary to those who see him rightly, 
i.e. fear him. You have others who are going their own life of unbelief, and he's an annoyance. He's a tripping hazard. He's a stumbling block, a stumbling stone. And this is who he is for the houses of Israel. So far from being a refuge to them, the Lord is simply this obstacle of unbelief. As the Lord sends his prophets to warn the people, as he sent Isaiah to warn Ahaz, Ahaz feigned spirituality, which we talked about last week, and he doesn't believe. He trusts in his own schemes, his own wisdom, rejects the Lord, and in so doing stumbles. Isaiah is just this troubler coming to talk to me about faith. Oh, Isaiah, you're, 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 you're too naive. You know, I, I'm the wise one, right? I'm the one in power. Let me make these own, my, my, my decisions. You go on with your, you know, your noble faith. And it's interesting that, that, that he says here that it's the Lord of hosts who's the stone to strike and the rock to stumble over, though. Even though Isaiah brought the message, it's the Lord that they stumble over. And it's important for us to realize this. Jesus says this, that it's when they reject you, they really don't reject you, they reject me. Luke 10, 16, the one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who does not, and the one who rejects, sorry, and the one who rejects me is he who, I must have wrote this wrong, I thought I copied and pasted, it didn't work. The one who rejects you rejects me. Now think of that. You talk to somebody, the water cooler, right, about Jesus Christ, the centrality, the, 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 the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He's the only way to God, the only way you'll be saved. He's a glorious Savior. And they look at that message, they discount it, they say, that's good for you, it's not for me. What are they doing there? They are rejecting, stumbling over the Lord, not you, the Lord. That's a sobering thing. When you come to people, this is what you're doing. You're holding out for them the Lord Jesus. And if they reject you, they reject him. And here he says it's both the houses of Israel. Both houses of Israel. A stone to strike, a rock to stumble over. The northern tribes, the southern tribe, they all give him up. They stumble over him. Even most of Judah... And of course, this was, this was in Isaiah's day, but, but it's the same when Jesus comes into the world. Matthew 21, Jesus gave the parable of the vineyard, where he basically fundamentally says, the Jews, the very ones that were to be the builders of God's house, so to speak, in his kingdom, were the very ones to kill the Son of God himself. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God's own Son, was finally rejected by his own people. He was a stumbling block to them. You know, what's interesting is that he was even, I don't want to say he was a stumbling block to John the Baptist, but he almost was. What do I mean? Luke chapter 7, remember John is in prison, and he's getting word about the ministry of Jesus going about doing good, healing, exercising demons, those sorts of things. And he's confused a little bit. He's not quite sure what to make of his cousin. He thought, certainly, that he was the Messiah. He said that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
He said that he was one who existed before him. He said a lot of good things about him. He knows that he's not worthy even to untie the thong of Jesus' sandals, and yet he's struggling in jail. After all, he's in jail. How, how, how can I be in jail when the, my cousin's the Messiah? Are we supposed to be in jail? I thought he comes in and crushes everything. Right? Listen to what he says. The disciples of John reported to John about all the things that Jesus was doing. So summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? And when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? And at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. So it's interesting. They come to him and they say, are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah? And at that point, Jesus turns and does lots of other miracles. He casts out demons. He gives sight to the blind. And then after he does that, he answers them. Now, you go... And you report to John what you have seen. And he quotes Isaiah 61. Well, Isaiah 61 is all about the Messiah. All about the servant of the Lord. In Isaiah 61, we see that the Messiah comes and he, he, he causes the, the, the lame to walk and the lepers to be cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So he basically says, yes, I, I understand that John does not quite grasp why I haven't thr- overthrown everything yet, overthrown Roman occupation, all these kinds of things. I understand he's trying to come to terms with these things, but you let him know this is part of the Messiah's mission. And Jesus ends with these words, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That word offense is the same word for stumbling block. Scandalon is the word. See, John had expectations of the kingdom of God being immediately established when the Messiah comes. This is extremely important for us, by the way, and I think you'll see that in a minute. He he did not realize fully the way this kingdom was to be built. Even the disciples, after the resurrection in Acts 1, say, okay, you're going to do it now? Is this the time that the the kingdom of Israel is redeemed and established? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know epochs or times, but you are my witnesses. And when the Holy Spirit comes to power, you're going to go be my witnesses. See, disciples, this is a time of witness. That's where you live. You live in a time of witness. You are witnessing before this watching world the gospel of God. And John needed to hear this. John needed to come to terms with the famously, you know, the already the not yet. What, what, is, what is now versus what's going to come? And Jesus says, blessed is he who does not take offense at him. Blessed is the one who doesn't have their expectations smashed by Jesus' real mission. Jesus came into the world to preach the gospel and save his people from their sins, not set up an earthly kingdom. He says, I come to preach the gospel to the poor. He did not come to set up an earthly kingdom. And in our day, Jesus can also be a stumbling block to people who think this way about Christianity. Can't they? 
Well, Christians are here to make the world a better place, right? Christians are here to bring peace. Christians are here to, make, to bring about human flourishing. Is that our fundamental mission? No, it's not. That might be the mission of the Peace Corps, but that's not our mission. Now, it may happen as a fruit of who we are, because we are those that have, I guess you could say, started to become truly human because we're renewed in the image of God in Jesus Christ. But our true mission is not to make the world a better place. It's not to make it an awful place, but our fundamental mission is not to just, is not this, is not this understanding. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace. Now, why would he say that? He would say that because you might think he was. You might think because he's a very loving, compassionate man that he has come to just be a community organizer. Right? And just make everybody feel better, right? This is not fundamentally his mission. He goes on to say, do not think that I came to bring peace. I came to bring a what? You know, a sword. Whoa, that's a violent, that's violent terminology. But that's exactly what it is. We have come to preach a gospel so exclusive and divisive that it separates households. And if you don't have an understanding that that's exactly what we are here for, not to just separate the household, but to be faithful to the message such that it does, then he will be a stumbling block to you. And you really want to ask yourself this. Why are you a Christian? Are you a Christian fundamentally because you want to make the world a better place, or you think that's what Christianity is, or it's because we are trying to rescue people from perishing. Now, that's very simple. More could be said. But fundamentally, that's, that's the issue. Jesus was a stumbling block to the Jews because their own sin was not in their minds at all as to the real issue. His own disciples did not fully grasp that he has come to build a kingdom not through military might, but through an atoning death. You really have to understand that this is what we do. We promote the gospel not by taking other people's lives, but by being willing to lay down our own lives. If you think that Christianity is anything else, this morning, you've you got a decision to make. He's either going to be a stumbling block to you now that you're coming to terms of this, or you're going to fall on him and embrace him as Savior and Messiah. I mean, that's, that's really what's at stake. The reason Jesus is a stumbling block is because he comes to confront humanity with man's real problems of unbelief, idolatry, sin, those kinds of things. And he's an utter annoyance to the religious community. All the different religions out there, and even the, the, just the merely religious within Christianity. This is why the message of the cross is, is called a stumbling block. It exposes the heinous nature of our sin, the righteousness of God, and the, the exclusive means by which we are made right with God. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
Why? Well, because we've seen that our greatest issue is the very thing the cross rectifies, which is what? Sin. Sin before a holy God. Now we see, oh, the cross is everything. That's the power of God. For it is written, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And it's true. You look at the world and how they're trying to reason and make sense out of things and propose their own diagnoses and solutions, and they're just bankrupt on every level. Every level. But God was well pleased through the foolishness, the foolishness of the message preached to save, to save those who believe. For, for indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. There it is. Jesus Christ is a stumbling block to Jews. And to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called... That's you and me, if we know Christ, both Jews and Greeks, and any Jew that calls on the Lord, or any Greek that calls on the Lord, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. The word of the cross is foolishness. If it is so important that you know that. It's so important that I know that when we're out there in the market talking to folks. They will see it as folly. And he says it's the word of the cross, the logic, the logia of the cross, the rationale of the cross is foolishness. The message of the cross is, is, is just, it's folly to people. They don't, they, don't, they don't embrace it. Well, what is the rationale? Well, it's the message that humanity is cut off from God because of their sin. It's the message of the cross that, that God sends His own Son into the world. God Himself comes and takes on flesh, lives this sinless life among us, dies an atoning death, and is a curse for men as a substitute. The message of the cross is that a man will not be saved by his own goodness or his good works, but by faith in Christ alone. The message of the cross reveals the righteousness of God in that it shows that uh, what God really thinks of sin. You look at the cross, you look at that bloody, awful, accursed moment, and you see what God really thinks of sin. It's, sin, it's, it's scandalous. It's, it's very offensive. But people have to realize that this is reflective of your own sin. This is what it looks like for God to treat you as an enemy. And this is the way you will be treated one day, finally, if you don't come to Christ. That's what the Scriptures teach. God is righteous. God does not take sin lightly. This is what the cross reveals. This is why it's folly. This is why it's a stumbling block. And one day if men do not hide themselves in Jesus Christ, they will bear their own sin and experience the full measure of God's wrath for their sin forever. Again, that's a stumbling block, isn't it? Not a very popular message. You know, the Apostle Paul can say that he's innocent from the blood of all men because he did not shrink from declaring to them everything in the whole counsel of God, Acts 21. You know, a false prophet can be marked by what he says in error of the Scriptures. It can also be marked in, by what he does not say. Paul says, I preach the whole counsel of God. 
The love of God, yes, but the wrath of God and the severity of God included. Sin and the wrath of God are things that ultimately aren't popular in our day, and frankly, they never have been. And yet, this is the faithful message of the, cro- of the cross, and, and this is exactly what will cause people to come to terms with if Jesus is going to be a stumbling block or not. It's tempting when we don't see results to adjust the message or take some aspect of the offense of the cross out in order to, quote, reach the culture. But we cannot do this. Because why? Well, it's because it's the message of the cross that actually saves folks. So if you cut it in half, people won't even understand what they've been saved to or for or from. Paul also says in Romans 9.30, as he thinks about the Gentiles now who are coming to faith and the Jews who are by and large unbelieving, he says this, What then shall we say that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness? Huh? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness found it? Yeah. Even the righteousness of God which is by faith. How did the Gentiles become righteous before a holy God? Well, by faith. By faith in Jesus Christ. But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Isaiah 28. So the Jews stumble over justification by faith alone. This message of faith in Christ apart from works of the law is a tripping hazard, an annoyance to Jews, really an annoyance to religious people. Because a religious people size up their own righteousness based on who they are and what they've done, right? That's how they size it up. And that's a stumbling block when you tell them the only way that you can be made right with the holy God is by trusting in Jesus Christ, a crucified Savior. It's a stumbling block. The message of the cross is we have no righteousness before God no matter how hard we try. The Gentiles, these Gentiles that believed in Jesus understood that. And they didn't have the law for the centuries that that Israel did, and yet they grasped it. But the Jews, the Israelites, unfortunately did not. They, They stumble, and they killed him. But it's not as if Israel is more sinful or wicked than the rest of humanity, right? The rest of religious humanity, especially. All of our hearts are desperately wicked, deceitful. But nonetheless, it's the Jews themselves that treated Jesus as as in opposition to the will of God. And they killed him. And you know, Peter calls Jesus a living stone in chapter 2. And he calls us living stones as well. And there's this reality that as they stumble on him, the living stone, they will stumble on us as well. And they will as long as we are faithful in what we preach. What do I mean by that? If we preach the whole Christ, he will still be treated as a stumbling stone. 
But if we truncate Christ, if we preach half a gospel, then we take away that, that obstacle that people trip over. Right? It's not fun to want to, I don't know, it's not fun to want to think about causing offense. And it's not as if we need to try and see how, you know, how, uh, you know, how mean we can really be in talking to people. That's not what I'm saying. But when you're talking to people about their great need for Christ, you have to spell out to them the bad news. As Peter tells the congregations in Asia that Jesus was a stumbling stone, it's to encourage them and us that they too will be a rock to stumble over. So when people are annoyed or offended because we tell them their works won't save them, we tell them their righteousness is filthy rags before God, we have to remember if they reject us, it's very Christ-like. When you shatter people's expectations of how to be made right with God, they will stumble But that very well could be a mark of faithfulness. You know, Paul says that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. It seems odd, right, that the more you live like God, the more you will be persecuted, but that's true, isn't it? And you and I have to be very well prepared for this, and I mean that. We have to more and more want to live godly, but also understanding that that will bring rejection. Jesus says to his own family some pretty sobering words. John 7, Jesus has been doing miracles. His family finds out about it. They're like, oh, now the the feast is in Jerusalem. You should go up there and show off all your wonders to them too. Then you'll become really famous. And his brothers say to him, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly, which apparently, I know that's why you're doing this, Jesus, is just to seek to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And John enters this little interpretive statement, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you. Think of that. The world cannot hate you. That's not a good thing, is it? But it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. What an indictment by Jesus to his own family members. His own family members. You know, mom, dad, brother, sister, the world can't hate you. It's going to hate me, though, because... I'm the light of the world and I have to expose darkness. We have to ask ourselves, what would Jesus say to us? Would he say, the world cannot hate you? Would he say that your desire for the praise of men and your desire to be liked by the world, would would that give the world any reason to be offended by you? Is your gospel so truncated that you don't bring in the reality of sin and death because you don't want to offend? Is the message so vague? You know, nobody's really offended by, God, by, by men going around saying God loves them. 
You know, in the book of Acts, and I, I, I just encourage you to do this, this is not the message of the early church. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That is not the message. Matter of fact, you will be hard-pressed to find the word love in the book of Acts at all. Don't believe me? Go look it up. And again, my point is not to say that we can't ever talk about the love of God in the gospel, because it's there. But fundamentally, we have to sincerely warn people as to why they need Christ anyway. You have to testify to the world that its deeds are evil. If, you, if, you do not, if they don't understand that they're lost, they're not going to know or have any sense of why they need to be saved. Saved from what? Why? Of course God loves me, if there is a God, right? So that's not our message. Our message fundamentally is really still John's message, which is what? Flee the wrath to come. Hide yourself in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. All of those kinds of things. See, we don't get in, we don't get in trouble when we soft-pedal things and when we're quiet and we're just nice people. We get in trouble when we open our mouths. Is that right? You know, I went to a luncheon this past week. It was a bunch of Southern Baptist pastors. And I don't have time to go into all of it. It was a very good meeting, actually. But what actually became clear to me in the meeting, we were talking about the liberal drift in the Southern Baptist Convention, and a lot of them didn't think there was one. I do. And so I voiced some things, especially regarding this stuff with critical race theory and social justice stuff, which I know we're all tired of hearing about, and I agree. However, still in the church, so I brought it up that day. And... Some of you know what I'm talking about, others maybe you don't, but they adopted a resolution um, a year ago to, to use critical race theory as an analytical tool in one of their resolutions at the Southern Baptist Convention. And without going into all the details of it, the bottom line is they shouldn't have embraced it, they should have denounced it. 100% outright Critical race theory is Marxism. Marxism is wicked, antithetical to the gospel. It's a different worldview altogether, blah, blah, blah. They should have said that. They didn't. So what ended up happening is they're getting a lot of blowback now because other people are speaking out, and now they're, now they're, now they're chalking it up to, oh, I wish there wasn't so much division in the, in, in the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm like, well, I mean, you brought it on yourself when you let the little leaven in the door. But what became clear to me this past week as I listened to some of the guys um, describe why they didn't denounce it, it became clear to me that it was fear. It was fear. They were afraid that if we say critical race theory has no place in the church of Jesus Christ, that they would be written off by the culture. That they would not have any voice. That, they, that, that we would have no more opportunities to speak to them about the truth if we denounce this stuff. And it dawned on me it dawned on me that it's fear, it's fear of rejection that kept them from speaking clearly. And I would say to these people, and have said, they need to repent. They need to be courageous men. They need to be men that are able to say, like Paul, 
When speculations that are against God come up, we destroy them. We don't coddle them. We destroy them. We absolutely smash them to pieces. Why? Because it takes this much leaven to leaven the whole lump. We don't coddle it. We don't play with it. We destroy it. And that's what they weren't doing. And guess what happened? Now you have this, all of this you know, turmoil in the SBC. Well, it actually was received pretty well, these things that I said, and so I'm thankful for that, but it was just very, I realized, okay, that's, that's what's going on here. The press was all over the, the conference that day, and they had an opportunity to just get this stuff passed through without dealing with it, and they compromised along the way. It's very tempting to just, you know, we don't want to be offensive. I get that, but at the same time, we... Jesus says in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. <laughs> Why is it bad that all men speak well of you? Well, in here, it's because that's the way the Jews used to, teach, used to treat the false prophets. You used to prop them up, you know, give them a voice. You, know. you guys are doing great. Ever have anything bad to say about them? These false prophets that go preach peace, peace when there is no peace, Jeremiah says. Peace, peace when there is no peace. I heard a man on the radio the other day say that, and he's, he has this ministry, I think it's called 721 Ministries or something like that, and he, he actually said that the rich young ruler was a Christian, but just a man who wasn't, quote, living in the flow. And I was like, man, what is that? Jesus says that this man does not enter the kingdom. Not that he's missing out on the flow, whatever that means. But you know what that is? That's, I don't want to, that's a little too exclusive. It's a little too rigid. It's a little too narrow. So let's make it a little broader. And that's exactly what it is. It made all of those rich people who claim to be Christians, who trust in their money more than Christ, it gave them a lot of comfort. And it makes the way broad. Not to say you can't have money and be in Christ. I'm not saying that. But. And ultimately, Jesus is a snare and a trap. A snare and a trap. He's a stumbling stone, and he's a snare and a trap. These terms used in hunting contexts, right? You're very familiar with them. Snares trap people. And here it's... It's basically saying that that, that that annoying stone on the path of their life actually becomes the mechanism of their own entrapment and consequent destruction. See, the Jews thought that when they rejected Jesus and killed him, they were getting rid of him. <laughs> right? When people reject you in the gospel, they think, oh, good, I'm glad I'm done with that. <laughs> but they're not, are they? They're actually, there's this invisible snare around their foot at that moment. They don't realize that their rejection of him is their destruction. You hear it ironically in these words, and then I'm going to wrap up. The prophetic words that came out of the mouth of the Jews when they were seeking to kill Jesus, and Pilate was dumbfounded at how bloodthirsty they were for Christ. Listen to this. 
And he, that's Pilate, said, when they were saying, crucify him, crucify him, he was saying, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd and saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, listen, his blood shall be on us and on our children. (laughs) Those words could have not been more true. They were not really thinking that they were going to have blood on their heads, were they? They weren't really saying, yeah, we know we're guilty. But it's ironic because they were guilty. They were so deceived into thinking that they were accomplishing a good thing by killing this blasphemer, but it was a trap and a snare. The very act of seeking his death would indeed lay the blood of the Son of God on their own heads. So that's what I mean. He's a snare and a trap. You reject him, you're cooked. But you know what? In Acts chapter 2, some of those people who were saying his blood be on us and on our children were there too. And you know what? Some of those people repented. Remember when he said that? You put him to death? Some of those people, probably in this very crowd, saying his blood be on us and our children, were the ones that when they started to see what Peter was preaching, that no, this is Lord in Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord of glory. They repented. You know, you can't get more gracious than that. You can't. Murdering The Son of God can be forgiven. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. But for those who reject Christ, that rejection is a snare. Is a snare. And ultimately, Peter says they are disobedient to the word these who reject Christ, and to this end, they were also appointed. So as we've seen, people who are disobedient to the call of the gospel, they stumble on the message of the cross. But Peter tells us that this too is by divine appointment. He said, to this doom, they are appointed. What does this mean? This this means, ultimately, that it's the Lord that appoints some to obey and some to disobey, finally. If you're going to do language to the text, do justice to the text. We have to understand what Peter spells out. People willfully disobey the gospel because they don't want the gospel. And yet, even this disobedience, ultimately, is under the sovereign freedom of God. Remember what Peter said in Acts 2? Wicked men delivered over Jesus Christ. And yet, this was according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Right? That's what he said. See, when we preach and people don't believe, it's not as if we fail. If we're preaching it faithfully, it's not as if we fail. Right? That's not it. Now, we can fail by keeping our mouth shut. 
or by diluting the gospel. But when we actually proclaim the gospel, however simply we proclaim it, and people reject it, and they don't believe it, it's not as if we fail, and it's not as if God fails. So that's what we have to understand. Peter says, and to this doom they were appointed means God has a plan for the wicked and the righteous. Brethren, this is God's world. This is God's history. God knows where it's all going. And he's appointed it so. And so this is for you and I just a reminder that it's on us to be faithful. It's on us to to be excited about proclaiming this gospel. To be joyful about it. To know that it's the excellencies of God. And yet to know that if some people don't believe, while it should make us incredibly grieved, it's not as if we fail. Peter says, yeah, they they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were appointed. So you fall back on this reality that, whoa, God is sovereign. And then you fall back on this reality that if you don't stumble over Jesus, well, that's the grace of God in your life. To this glory you were appointed. And that's where Peter is actually going to go in in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Election is the ground of our salvation. Without it, no one's getting saved because we don't want God. But God is gracious to save some. So, all that to be said, let's not be, uh, let's have realistic expectations when we go into the world and we proclaim. Let's do it. It's a wonderful gospel. And we don't know who's going to believe. And just like these Jews, they can be bloodthirsty in one moment and then have the gospel explained to them in the next and, and they'll come to know Christ. Maybe that'll happen, like in Acts 2. But, um, but let's also not be shocked when we're just rejected, hated, annoyed. People are annoyed at us, offended. It's going to be part of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Continue to help our church, Lord, our, our little band of brethren here, to be faithful to your word, no matter what. Um, And uh, Lord, we pray that you would save sinners. Lord, we want to see people bow their knee to Jesus. We want to see people that do not take offense at him. And, um, And that you would use us for this glorious ministry. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, Let me also say something real quick. I'll close this out.